Welcome to For Our Journey. Today, a short ancient text about living in view of birds and wildflowers, followed by a few selections from the journal of Jonathan Woolman, an 18th century American who strove to live by text such as this one, and then D.H. Lawrence's The Rocking Horse Winner, a portrait of a family or society that does not live by such text. First, a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is maybe the first biblical text of more than a couple lines that I memorized when in my teens. It was a window in the framework I was building for making decisions about how to live and for living with my decisions. The passage was in mind when I would retreat into the Maine woods, hitchhike across the USA, and work with the homeless. It was in mind later when I traveled in foreign lands by foot on top of freight hauled by open back trucks and in bush plains. It was in mind when I married one from a different culture and began raising a family on a shoestring budget. It was in mind as our income grew and it became easier to obtain wants as well as needs, and this passage would serve as a challenge to resist the force, especially strong in the U.S., pushing us to obtain things as a distraction from or insensitivity to rather than a respect for basic relationships between mortals and the divine, between humanity and the natural environment between persons and persons. About the same time that I memorized the Ravens and Flowers passage, I read in the first of the 51 volumes of Harvard Classics in my dad's library, now in mine, the Journal of Jonathan Woolman. Woolman was born in 1720 in New Jersey, a place of farms and small towns and a place where there was slavery, even among the Quakers, one of the largest religious groups in the area, 
of whom Woman's family was a part. It was a place where comforts, style, luxury, for some, were at the cost of others, laboring in deplorable conditions in plantations, mines, factories, and ships. And it was a place from where Native Americans had been expelled and were being driven even further away. Woolman realized as a young man that this dark side of American and European life did not at all conform with the teachings of Jesus. And he spent his life trying to live more in keeping with these teachings and calling others, especially his fellow Quakers, to do the same. Woolman strove to live in keeping with the wildflowers and raven passage, observing that the less we do so, the more we are apt to contribute to systemic and personal oppression. Woolman was convinced that reverence for God entailed reverence for all life, and reverence for all life entailed right relationships with the divine, with each other, with animals, and with the environment. The more we worry about what we and our in-group will eat and wear, let alone where we will live, what we will drive, how to invest for so-called security, the less we are concerned with what Woolman refers to as universal righteousness, right relationships between all, to be established in keeping with the divine kingdom in which the poor and peace lovers participate more than the wealthy and warriors. Here are some slightly edited passages from Woolman's journal. I had several offers of business that appeared profitable, but I did not see my way clear to accept of them, believing they would be attended with more outward care and cumber than was required of one to engage in. I saw that a humble man, with the blessing of the Lord, might live on a little, and that where the heart was set on greatness, success in business did not satisfy the craving, but that commonly, with an increase of wealth, the desire of wealth increased. I saw in Virginia and Maryland so many vices and corruptions increased by the slave trade in this way of life that it appeared to me as a dark gloominess hanging over the land. And though now many willingly run into it, yet in future the consequence will be grievous to posterity. A person at some distance lying sick, his brother came to me to write his will. I knew he had slaves, and asking his brother was told he intended to leave them as slaves to his children. As writing is a profitable employ, and as offending sober people was disagreeable to my inclination, I was straightened in my mind, but as I looked to the Lord, he inclined my heart to his testimony. I told the man that I believed the practice of continuing slavery to this people was not right, and that I had a scruple in my mind against doing writings of that kind that though many in our society kept them as slaves, still I was not easy to be concerned in it and desired to be excused from going to write the will. I spake to him in the fear of the Lord, and he made no reply to what I said but went away. He also had some concerns in the practice, and I thought he was displeased with me. 
In this case, I had fresh confirmation that, acting contrary to present outward interest from a motive of divine love and in regard to truth and righteousness, and thereby incurring the resentments of people, opens the way to a treasure better than silver and to a friendship exceeding the friendship of people. The increase of business became my burden, for though my natural inclination was toward merchandise, yet I believed truth required me to live more free from outward cumbers, and there was now a strife in my mind between the two. In this exercise, my prayers were put up to the Lord, who graciously heard me and gave me a heart resigned to his holy will. Then I lessened my outward business, and, as I had opportunity, told my customers of my intentions, that they might consider what shop to turn to. And in a while I wholly laid down merchandise and followed my trade as a tailor by myself, having no apprentice. I also had a nursery of apple trees in which I employed some of my time in hoeing, grafting, trimming, and inoculating. By not attending to that use of things which is consistent with universal righteousness, there is an increase of labor which extends beyond what our Heavenly Father intends for us. Every degree of luxury hath some connection with evil. The sun appearing, we set forward, and as I rode over the barren hills, my meditations were on the alterations in the circumstances of the natives of this land since the coming in of the English. The lands near the sea are conveniently situated for fishing. The lands near the rivers, where the tides flow and some above, are in many places fertile and not mountainous, while the changing of the tide makes passing up and down easy with any kind of traffic. The natives have, in some places, for trifling considerations, sold their inheritance so favorably situated, and in other places have been driven back by superior force. Their way of clothing themselves is also altered from what it was, and they, being far removed from us, have to pass over mountains, swamps, and barren deserts, so that traveling is very troublesome in bringing their skins and furs to trade with us. By the extension of English settlements, and partly by the increase of English hunters, the wild beasts on which the natives chiefly depend for subsistence are not so plentiful as they were, and people too often, for the sake of gain, induce them to waste their skins and furs in purchasing a liquor which tends to be the ruin of them and their families. I had a prospect of the English along the coast for upwards of 900 miles where I traveled, and their favorable situation and the difficulties attending the natives as well as the slaves in many places were open before me. I felt a strong engagement that we might so attend to pure universal righteousness as to give no just cause of offense to anyone, whether or not they agree with our religious beliefs. Here I was led into a close and laborious inquiry whether I, as an individual, kept clear from all things which tended to stir up or were connected with wars. 
In this lonely journey, I did greatly bewail the spreading of a wrong spirit, believing that the prosperous, convenient situation of the English would require a constant attention in us to divine love and wisdom in order to their being guided and supported in a way answerable to the will of that good, gracious, and almighty being who hath an equal regard for all humanity. And here luxury and covetousness, with the numerous oppressions and other evils attending them, appeared very afflicting to me, and I felt in that which is immutable that the seeds of great calamity and desolation are sown and growing fast on this continent. Nor have I words sufficient to set forth the longing I then felt, that we who are placed along the coast and have tasted the love and goodness of God might arise in the strength thereof, and like faithful messengers labor to check the growth of these seeds, that they may not ripen to the ruin of our posterity. Before sailing to England, I told the ship's owner that I had at several times in my travels seen great oppressions on this continent, at which my heart had been much affected and brought into a feeling of the state of the sufferers, and having many times been engaged in the fear and love of God to labor with those under whom the oppressed have been borne down and afflicted, I have often perceived that with a view to get riches and to provide estates for children that they may live conformably to the customs and honors of this world, Many are entangled in the spirit of oppression, and the exercise of my soul had been such that I could not find peace in joining in anything which I saw was against that wisdom which is pure. So, rather than staying in one of the cabins for paying passengers, I stayed below in the dark close quarters of the sailors. Well, that gives a taste of Jonathan Woolman's journal. It is available on the internet and can be read in a couple of hours. In high school, I had a friend whose parents were one of the few in our small town to have two cars. They were the only ones to have a luxury car and a sports car. Their driveway was the longest in town, leading through woods to their stone house on a hill. The living room was finely furnished, but the couch and chairs were covered. Always covered, my friend told me, even with the most respected company, so that the cloth wouldn't get stained or worn and the wood would remain unmarked. Her parents did not like her or her brother, she said, but perhaps they had been acquired as a sign of moral prestige to complement the social prestige of the Cadillac and Firebird. The adopted siblings sensed that their upkeep was as irritating to their parents as the monthly bills for the cars and house. I probably had other friends with similar family situations, but this was my first close-up view of obsessive concern for material goods, outward appearance, status based on things, and how it can affect relationships. I always think of this family when I read D.H. Lawrence's The Rocking Horse Winner about a family who live in a house that whispers, there must be more money. The story illustrates Woolman's observation that where the heart was set on greatness, success in business did not satisfy the craving. But commonly with an increase of wealth, the desire of wealth increased. 
And the story may also be read as a parable, if not allegory, for a whole country with, as Woman put it, a dark gloominess hanging over the land, a gloom of oppression and environmental destruction as greatness becomes a euphemism for greed. Here is an abridged and slightly edited version of D.H. Lawrence's The Rocking Horse Winner, written between the two world wars. There was a woman who was beautiful, who started with all the advantages, yet she had no luck. She married for love, and the love turned to dust. She had bonny children, yet she felt they had been thrust upon her, and she could not love them. Only she herself knew that at the center of her heart was a hard little place that could not feel love. No, not for anybody. Everybody else said of her, she is such a good mother. She adores her children. Only she herself and her children themselves knew it was not so. They read it in each other's eyes. There were a boy and two little girls. They lived in a pleasant house with a garden, and they had discreet servants and felt themselves superior to anyone in the neighborhood. Although they lived in style, they felt always an anxiety in the house. There was never enough money. The mother had a small income and the father had a small income, but not nearly enough for the social position which they had to keep up. The father, who was always very handsome and expensive in his tastes, seemed as if he never would be able to do anything worth doing. There must be more money. And the mother, who had a great money. belief in herself, did not succeed any better, and her tastes were just as expensive. There must be more money. And so the house came be to be haunted money. with the unspoken phrase, there must be more money. They heard it at Christmas when the expensive and splendid toys filled the nursery. Behind the shining be modern money. rocking horse, be behind the smart doll's house, a voice would start money. whispering, there, there must be more money. Mother, said the boy Paul one day, why don't we keep a car of our own? Why do we always use uncles or else a taxi? Because we're the poor members of the family, said the mother. But why are we, mother? Well, I suppose... She said slowly and bitterly, It's because your father has no luck. And aren't you lucky either, mother? I can't be. I married an unlucky husband. But by yourself, aren't you? I used to think I was before I married. Now I think I am very unlucky indeed. Why? Well, never mind. Perhaps I'm not really. The child looked at her to see if she meant it but he saw by the lines of her mouth that she was only trying to hide something from him. Well, anyhow, I'm a lucky person. Why, said his mother with a sudden laugh. He stared at her. He didn't even know why he had said it. God told me, he asserted, reasoning it out. I hope he did, dear, she said again with a laugh, but rather bitter. He went off by himself, vaguely, in a childish way, seeking for the clue to luck. Absorbed, taking no heed of other people, he went about with a sort of stealth, seeking inwardly for luck. He wanted luck. He wanted it. He wanted it. 
When the two girls were playing dolls in the nursery, he would sit on his big rocking horse, charging madly into space with a frenzy that made the little girls peer at him uneasily. Wildly, the horse careened. The waving dark hair the boy tossed. His eyes had a strange glare in them. The little girls dared not speak to him. When he had ridden to the end of his mad little journey, he climbed down and stood in front of his rocking horse, staring fixedly into its lowered face. Its red mouth was slightly open. Its big eye was wide and glassy bright. Now, he would silently command the snorting steed, now take me to where there is luck. Now take me and he would slash the horse on the neck with the little whip he had asked Uncle Oscar for. He knew the horse could take him to where there was luck, if only he forced it. So he would mount again and start on his furious ride, hoping at last to get there. One day his mother and his Uncle Oscar came in when he was on one of his furious rides. He did not speak to them. "'Hello, you young jockey, riding a winner,' said his uncle." Aren't you growing too big for a rocking horse, said his mother. You're not a very little boy any longer, you know. But Paul only gave a blue glare from his big, rather close-set eyes. He would speak to nobody when he was in full tilt. His mother watched him with an anxious expression on her face. At last, he suddenly stopped forcing his horse into the mechanical gallop and slid down. Well, I got there he announced fiercely, his blue eyes still flaring and his sturdy long legs straddling apart. Where did you get to? asked his mother. Where I wanted to go, he flared back at her. That's right, son, said Uncle Oscar. Don't you stop till you get there. What's the horse's name? He doesn't have a name, said the boy. Get on without, all right, asked the uncle. Well, he has different names. He was called Sansovino last week. Sansovino, eh? Won the ascot. How did you know this name? He always talks about horse races with Bassett, said the sister Joan. The uncle was delighted to find that his small nephew was posted with all the racing news. Bassett, the young gardener, lived in the racing events, and the small boy lived with him. The narrator then tells how Uncle Oscar learns from Bassett that the boy has a talent for identifying winning horses and that he and the boy have won a considerable amount of money on these horses. Oscar joins them in a betting partnership, and the luck continues. The narrator tells us that the gardener Bassett was as serious as a church when he talks about the luck, the money that Paul is winning for them. He speaks in a secret religious voice and says that it's as if his luck is from heaven. After the boy picks a winner for a ten-to-one return, bringing them all another large sum of money, the uncle asks, But what are you going to do with your money? Of course, said the boy. I started it for mother. She said she had no luck because father is unlucky, so I thought if I was lucky, it might stop whispering. What might stop whispering? Our house. I hate our house for whispering. What does it whisper? Why, why... I don't know, but it's always short of money. You know, Uncle. I know it, son. I know it. Paul, at his uncle's suggestion, handed over 5,000 pounds to his uncle, 
who deposited it with his family lawyer, who was then to inform Paul's mother that a relative had put 5,000 pounds into his hands, which sum was to be paid out a 1,000 pounds at a time on the mother's birthday for the next five years. So she'll have a birthday present of a 1,000 pounds for five successive years, said Uncle Oscar. I hope it won't make it all the harder for her later. Paul's mother had her birthday in November. The house had been whispering worse than ever lately, and even in spite of his luck, Paul could not bear up against it. He was very anxious to see the effect of the birthday letter, telling his mother about the thousand pounds. She was down to breakfast on the morning of her birthday. Paul watched her face as she read her letters. He knew the lawyer's letter. As his mother read it, her face hardened and became more expressionless. Then a cold, determined look came on her mouth. She hid the letter under the pile of others and said not a word about it. Didn't you have anything nice in the post for your birthday, mother? Quite moderately nice, she said, her voice cold and hard and absent. She went away to town without saying more. But in the afternoon, Uncle Oscar appeared. He said Paul's mother had had a long interview with a lawyer asking if the whole 5000 could not be advanced at once, as she was in debt. What do you think, Uncle? I leave it to you, son. Oh, let her have it then. We can get some more with the other. So Uncle Oscar signed the agreement, and Paul's mother touched the whole 5000 Then something very curious happened. The voices in the house suddenly went mad like a chorus of frogs on a spring evening. There were certain new furnishings and Paul had a tutor. He was really going to Eton, his father's school, in the following autumn. There were flowers in the winter and a blossoming of the luxury Paul's mother had been used to. And yet the voices in the house, behind the sprays of mimosa and almond blossom, and from under the piles of iridescent cushions, simply trilled and screamed in a sort of ecstasy. More money, oh, there must be more money. Oh, now, 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 there must be more money, more than ever, more than ever. It frightened Paul terribly. The Grand National had gone by. He had not known the winner and had lost a hundred pounds. Summer was at hand. He was in agony for the Lincoln. But even for the Lincoln, he didn't know, and he lost fifty pounds. He became wild-eyed and strange, as if something were going to explode in him. Let it alone, son. Don't you bother about it, urged Uncle Oscar. But it was as if the boy couldn't really hear what his uncle was saying. I've got to know for the derby. I've got to know for the derby. The child reiterated, his big blue eyes blazing with a sort of madness. His mother noticed how overwrought he was, but he tried to assure her. You needn't worry. I wouldn't worry, mother, if I were you. If you were me and I were you, said his mother, I wonder what we should do. But you know you needn't worry, mother, don't you? I should be awfully glad to know it. Oh, well, you can, you know. I mean, you ought to know you needn't worry. The derby was drawing near, and the boy grew more and more tense. He hardly heard what was spoken to him. He was very frail, and his eyes were really uncanny. 
His mother had sudden strange seizures of uneasiness about him. Two nights before the derby, she was at a big party in town when one of her rushes of anxiety about her boy, her firstborn, gripped her heart till she could hardly speak. She fought with the feeling, might remain, for she believed in common sense. It was about one o'clock when Paul's mother and father drove up to their house. All was still. Paul's mother went to her room and slipped off her white fur cloak. She had told her maid not to wait up for her. She heard her husband downstairs mixing a whiskey and soda. Because of the strange anxiety at her heart, she stole upstairs to her son's room. Noiselessly, she went along the upper corridor. Was there a faint noise? What was it? She stood outside his door, listening. There was a strange, heavy, and yet not loud noise. Her heart stood still. It was a soundless noise, yet rushing and powerful. Something huge and violent hushed motion. What was it? What in God's name was it? She ought to know. She felt that she knew the noise. She knew what it was, yet she could not place it. She couldn't say what it was, and on and on it went like a madness. Softly, frozen with anxiety and fear, she turned the door handle. The room was dark, yet in the space near the window, she heard and saw something plunging to and fro. She gazed in fear and amazement. Then suddenly she switched on the light and saw her son in his green pajamas madly surging on the rocking horse. The blaze of light suddenly lit him up as he urged his wooden horse and lit her up as she stood blonde in her dress of pale green and crystal in the doorway. Paul, she cried, whatever are you doing? It's Malabar, he screamed in a powerful, strange voice. It's Malabar! His eyes blazed at her for one strange and senseless second as he ceased urging his wooden horse. Then he fell with a crash to the ground, and she, all her tormented motherhood flooding upon her, rushed to gather him up. But he was unconscious, and unconscious he remained with some brain fever. He talked and tossed, and his mother sat stonily by his side. Malabar! It's Malabar! Bassett! Bassett! I know! It's Malabar! So the child cried, trying to get up and urge the rocking horse that gave him his inspiration. "'What does he mean by Malabar?' asked the heart-frozen mother. "'I don't know,' said the father stonily. "'What does he mean by Malabar?' she asked her brother Oscar. Yeah, "'It's one of the horses running for the derby.' And in spite of himself, Oscar Cresswell spoke to Bassett and himself put a thousand on Malabar at fourteen to one. The third day of the illness was critical. They were waiting for a change. The boy, with his rather long, curly hair, was tossing ceaselessly on the pillow. He neither slept nor regained consciousness, and his eyes were like blue stones. His mother sat, feeling her heart had gone, turned actually into a stone. In the evening, Oscar Cresswell did not come, but Bassett sent a message, saying could he come up for one moment, just one moment. Paul's mother was very angry at the intrusion, but on second thoughts, she agreed. The boy was the same. Perhaps Bassett might bring him to consciousness. The gardener, a shortish fellow with a little brown mustache and sharp little brown eyes, tiptoed into the room, touched his imaginary cap to Paul's mother, and stole to the bedside, staring with glittering, smallish eyes at the tossing, dying child. Master Paul, he whispered, Master Paul. Malabar came in first, all right, a clean win, 
I did as you told me. You've made over 70,000 pounds, you have. You've got over 80,000. Malabar came in all right, Master Paul. Malabar. Malabar. Did I say Malabar, Mother? Did I say Malabar? Do you think I'm lucky, Mother? I knew Malabar, didn't I? Over 80,000 pounds. I call that lucky, don't you, Mother? Over 80,000 pounds? I knew. Didn't I know I knew? Malabar came in all right. If I ride my horse till I'm sure, then I tell you, Bassett, you can go as high as you like. Did you go for all you were worth, Bassett? I went a thousand on it, Master Paul. I never told you, Mother, that if I can ride my horse and get there, then I'm absolutely sure. Oh, absolutely, Mother. Did I ever tell you? I am lucky. No, you never did. But the boy died in the night. And even as he lay dead, his mother heard her brother's voice saying to her, My God, Hester, you're eighty-odd thousand to the good and a poor devil of a son to the bad. But poor devil, poor devil, he's best gone out of a life where he rides his rocking horse to find a winner. Oh, brothers and sisters, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Thank you.